This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Our story this week picks up where we left off last week. Broadcasting from the Ziggurat at Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 494 of the Two-Headed Nerd Comic Book Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Matt Bob, And I'm the internet's Joe Patrick. Together, Matt and I are cursed to protect the arcane stepped pyramid we discovered in the ancient caverns under Omaha. In the meantime, we also share one body and force our moloid workers to fetch us comics to read and discuss from the surface world. On this week's episode, Joe and I take an up-close look at Euthanauts, number one, and Aphrodite V, number one. I think it's Aphrodite that, 5. Mm, I don't know. Aphrodite. After that, we'll review eight more of this Wednesday's <laughs> comics faster than impending floodwaters during the ludicrous speed round, and then we'll pay a visit to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum to discuss our must-read picks for next week. And finally, it's time for Nerd at the Movies, the Ant-Man and Wasp edition, where we spoil the death of Michael Pena. But hold on. Before we get into it, you want to feel old? Check this out. X-Men, the animated series, debuted 25 years ago this month. And if you remember it, you are so old, it is fucking gross. Now let's talk about this week's Nerd News! Nerd News! A live-action Batwoman television series is in development at the CW for a possible 2019 debut, according to Deadline. The DC CW's overarching producer, Greg Berlanti, of course, is developing the project with one-time The Vampire Diaries and Smallville executive producer Caroline Dries. Here's a quote. In Batwoman, written by Dries, based on the DC characters, armed with a passion for social justice and a flair for speaking her mind, Kate Kane soars onto the streets of Gotham as Batwoman, an out-lesbian and highly trained street fighter primed to snuff out the failing city's criminal resurgence. So literally every part of that sentence will piss off the entirety of the men's rights activists on the internet. For sure, yes, absolutely. There was no part of that sentence that won't be offensive to them. So true. <laughs> In a city desperate for a savior, Kate must overcome her own demons before embracing the call to be Gotham's symbol of hope. Dries and Berlanti are executive producing Batwoman, joined by uh, Sarah Schechter and, of course, Jeff Johns, who can't, he just hasn't met a DC property he didn't want to put his hands in. No. Now, Batwoman was previously announced to debut in a December DC-CW crossover between all the shows. This is the first word, though, that she's getting her own series, which I think is super fun. Yeah, I mean... Batwoman, I, I like that they're doing Katie Kane and they're not going for the Barbara Gordon thing. So we don't have to listen to everybody cry about that. What version of Barbara Gordon it is, how old she is. Or Katie Kane is a great character and they've done some really cool shit with her, but she is still kind of a blank slate for a lot of people. So I don't think there's any room to get really pissed off about this. No matter who they cast, I would like it to be a redhead. Obviously, well, I yeah. would like her to be very pale, obviously, but <laughs> right. you know, we shall see. 
Uh, they're full on leaning into it though. Social justice warrior, lesbian. <laughs> this one's got it all, baby. It's, you know, it's uh, very interesting that they are casting a Batman character without any existence of Batman in the CW universe. That's all we can do is dance around Batman. They can't. They won't let him do it. You know, for some reason, Superman can show up in Supergirl, but we can't touch. Batman. But he's only showed up twice, so like maybe they'll get it. Maybe they'll actually do it. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. But we'll see. I think Batwoman is a, like you said. Batman. Batwoman is a character that stands alone. Yeah. Uh, even if she's inspired by Batman or whatever, I think that she stands alone enough that they could do justice to the character in a in a solo show. Sure. But sooner or later, we're going to have to address where the fuck is Batman? I mean, come on. Uh, something to note is that if and when this show makes it to air, Batwoman will be the first and only out gay lead superhero character in any form of uh, visual media. Fair enough. Which is pretty cool. Way to go, CW. Look at you guys. From the Jeff Lemire desk, acclaim creator Matt Kent is launching his first ever Kickstarter project from the what desk? Look, we don't have Matt Kent without Jeff Lemire. Everybody knows that. Okay. okay? All right. He, he sprung from his head like Athena Nike. Matt Kent is launching his first ever Kickstarter project to independent. You, you didn't get my, my Roman gods. Yeah, no, I understand it. I'm not a dummy. Okay. (laughs) Matt Kent is launching his first ever Kickstarter project to independently finance an unusual project, an all-new standalone Mind Migment comic book and read-along seven-inch vinyl record by Kent and Clint McElroy of the McElroy Boys fame. But there's a twist on the classic book and the record formula. It's a quote. I believe this is from Kent. I grew up loving read along book and records like planet of the apes and Pete's dragon. So did I me too. And I've, and I've always wanted to experiment with this format to tell a comic book story in a new and unique way. Rather than simply having a comic that illustrates the audio, the comic book story will subvert the audio that you're hearing in the images will work completely differently when viewed while listening to the record. So in true mind management (laughs) form, it's going to fuck with you. Yeah. (laughs) Joining Kent, is Clint McElroy, a voice actor and the writer of comic books, including King of the USA and co-writer of The Adventure Zone, Here There Be Gerblins, who does all the voice acting for the audio track. Kent and McElroy will be donating 10% of the profits to the Hispanic Federation, the nation's premier Latino nonprofit membership organization, which is aiding Puerto Rico in its recovery from Hurricane Irma. The Kickstarter launched on July 10th and doubled its funding goal within hours, but... You have until August 9th if you still want to pledge. The idea is not to get this made now. The idea is to get on, get in on this and do a good thing as well. I think it's awesome. I, yeah. I totally grew up on book and records. Oh, yeah, man. I had, I had a Batman book and record where the Joker was the villain that gave me nightmares. Oh, man. I had all the Star Wars ones, and I remember they would go, you'll know it's time to turn the page when you hear R2-D2 beep like this. In right. like an R2-D2 <laughs> I had a I had a Superman one that was like the uh, the origin of Superman and the destruction of Krypton. Oh, they were so cool. I, yeah, love that I stuff. loved them I love when it. I was a kid. Oh, I, this is I great. think this is a, an amazing idea. And the idea that the book uh, that the pardon me, that the record is not a strict illustration of the book. That it leads readers astray. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. They're going to totally screw with you. Totally a mind management idea. 
Yeah, and the I fact it. that it's going to charity, that a lot of it's going to charity, is just icing on the cake. Oh yeah, that's just plain old sweet. That's great. So get to Kickstarter, seek it out, pledge your donation, get this product, support a good cause. Fantastic. And we'll put a idea. link in the notes for this show too. Yep. Definitely. Absolutely. Marvel Entertainment and IDW Publishing have announced just today that the two companies will develop middle-grade comic books designed for younger readers. <sighs> Feature, <yeah. laughs> what? I know. Featuring so, some of Marvel's most popular characters, the monthly issues and trade paperback collections, which will be published by IDW, will be available at local comic shops, book retailers across the country, broadening opportunities for the next generation of superheroes to experience the Marvel Universe. I don't understand. It blew my mind enough when they were started doing the Star Wars one. I know, I know. Which I just don't get. How does this work? How is this even remotely legal? We'll get, <laughs> you know? we'll get to that. Launching in November of this year, the collaboration between the two companies kicks off with a Spider-Man seri- series featuring both Peter Parker and Miles Morales, followed by an Avengers series in December and a Black Panther series in January 2019. Each of these titles will serve as an easily accessible jumping on point for younger readers to follow the adventures of their favorite characters. Creative teams and storylines will be announced later. Okay, it's great. I'm all for... You know, little guys reading comics. It's a great thing. Why is Marvel not doing this in-house? Exactly. This it's is so not, weird. This is not the first time that Marvel has partnered with IDW. Yeah. They're doing the same thing with their Star Wars line. Comics. They do it with their Disney books. They did it with a bunch yeah. of Star Wars books. I, I don't get it. Unless there is some under-the-table deal we don't know about and Marvel owns a big chunk of IDW no, or Disney no, owns a big that. chunk of it's IDW. It's not that. It's, How it's is this work some done? sort of licensing agreement. It's so bizarre. Why don't they but just do this in-house? IDW, I think, has proven to be a force in the younger market that Marvel has failed to capture in the last, like, 10 or 15 years. Okay, let's say this is a huge hit. Let's say this kills it. They put out a Wolverine book and little kids everywhere lose their minds. It's selling a million copies. When IDW's market share starts to cut into Marvel's, and this is hypothetical, but let's say it, it's so huge that it starts to affect their market share. What does Marvel do? Do they go, hooray, or do they go, fuck that. We're taking this back. Well, I mean, Marvel gets a piece of it, so I don't know why they'd complain. Well, because market share is market share, baby. You know, that's what they're always fighting for. So whether or not you get some residuals, wouldn't you rather have it all? Wouldn't you rather have 100% of it? I don't understand it. I don't understand why Marvel can't figure out how to capitalize on a younger audience. Yeah. Why can't Marvel figure out how to cater to a younger audience? It seems like they've just given up. I think they've decided there is there is X amount of money in selling kids comics, and we are not interested in X. That's what it seems like to but me. I, I don't know what else it could possibly look, be. ID- because they are pub- they're publishing no young reader stuff. Zero. Right. And IDW has proven to be like top dog, like My Little Pony and stuff like that at IDW. Oh, yeah. Are Kicking huge ass. Sellers, huge. I understand on the one hand why Marvel would say, let me get a piece of that. But like you said, why wouldn't Marvel just do it themselves? Yeah. I don't get you it. Know, the only thing I can assume is they are so busy doing their shit and making money hand over fist that this is a pittance that they don't even care about. And they're just like, fine, fuck it. You guys want to do it? 
go for it. Maybe. Let's know how it turns out. I don't know. Regardless, if it actually works and brings in younger readers, then that's good for the industry, and I hope that happens. Right. And finally, Joe Patrick from the Todd McFarland desk. Now, we have talked some smack, and I know we weren't really excited, and maybe we haven't been completely fair to the upcoming Spawn movie, but I'm going to give you some news that's going to change your mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. Avengers star Jeremy Renner has been cast in the upcoming Spawn reboot as Maximilian Twitch Williams. What? Yeah, the skinny guy, Sam and Twitch, the big, tall, skinny guy in glasses. You know, Jeremy Renner. <laughs> what kind of bullshit is that? What is that first, nonsense? My first reaction, who cares? <laughs> Look. I do not care about the Spawn movie. I do not plan on caring about the Spawn movie. And I'm calling my shot. You cannot make a good Spawn movie. I don't care who you get. I don't care who writes it. The character is inherently stupid. And it's not going to work. And I've been saying on this show, putting my foot down, smashing my hand on my desk, no one will come and defend Spawn. No one will do it. And that's what leads me to believe that I'm right. And no one cares. No one's going to care about this. There is an actor tailor-made to play Twitch in the Spawn movie. His name is William H. Macy. What the hell are you doing? Okay, Macy's a little old for the role at this point. You know who's not? Judge Reinhold. (laughs) <laughs> Judge Reinhold is old too. Judge Reinhold's very old. Yeah. No, uh, I, I don't care who plays fucking Twitch. I don't care if they go and get fucking Academy Award winner George Clooney to play him. You know? <laughs> yeah, you might as well get Brad Pitt to play Sam at this point. Yeah, fuck it. While we're at it, let's Huge do it. Fat asshole Sam. Brad Pitt. Let's do it. Well, no. I mean, Renner likes making money, and I'm sure they threw some cash at him, and good for him. And he can probably phone it in. I don't know. We don't know much about this. I am not excited, and this does not have me any more excited. And I still challenge one of you to come and defend Spawn. Tell me why I should care about a Spawn movie, because this is not doing it. So there's our poorly thought-out editorialisms on this week's news. Of course, there's always more to discuss, and we want to hear about it from you. So head over to the THN forums. Let us know what you thought about these stories and everything else we missed. You can find the forums by heading to TwoHeadedNerd.com and clicking on the forums button. As I stated earlier, it's better if you just mash on it. Just really get in there. Give it a whack. Hard as you can. Yeah. Hit it hard. It's review time in the ziggurat where Matt and I will ignore the whole of the American Intelligence Agency to give you our tainted opinions of two of this week's comics. Matt, start us off. My review is of Euthanauts, number one from IDW. It is written by Teeny Howard with art by Nick Robles, 32 pages for $3.99. Here is your solicit. Death is like outer space, a seemingly unknowable, terrifying blackness that yields beautiful discoveries and truths, if only you've got the right kind of rocket ship. Talia Rosewood has had a lifelong obsession with death, keeping her from living her life to the fullest. Mercy Wolf has a brain tumor the size of a billiard ball and a need for a new recruit before her next journey begins. Inigo Hanover is a reluctant tether to the world beyond, seeking to continue a cycle that exploration would halt Go toward the light, then go beyond. You the nuts! <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. I will right? say that after reading this issue, I only picked up on about half of that. 
Yeah, well, okay, I'll get into that. The Black Crown imprint at IDW is quickly becoming my favorite not-Vertigo imprint that reminds me of everything I loved about Vertigo comics in the late 90s. Shelly Bond's little weird punk rock imprint that could is becoming a halfway house for some of the weirdest and most original titles on the shelf, and Euthanauts is no exception. Writer Teeny Howard gets her second crack at a Black Crown title after her six-issue Assassinistas run, and this one feels like a better fit and a much better premise. Howard's dialogue is borderline goth prose at some points, but really works for this group of explorers' investigation of the secrets of the afterlife. I loved how the story looked like it was going to take this sweet, almost Neil Gaiman fairy tale turn, but instead jerks into pure violence at one point. <laughs> Nick Robles' art reminds me of everything that I love about Mark Buckingham, his work on Sandman and Fables, with P. Craig Russell's penchant for exploding his art off the page. His paneling is beautiful, and it falls apart into almost Dave McKeon territory as the story ventures towards the afterlife. Euthanauts was a bizarre first issue that challenges the reader to follow the story into the unknown while maintaining the punk rock, albeit somewhat goth, sensibilities of the Black Crown here. I suggest reading this with Susie and the Banshees and Nick Cave as your soundtrack. A little black eye makeup and candlelight couldn't hurt either. I'm giving Euthanauts, number one, a huge buy it. I don't know if I'd give it a huge buy it, but I did really like it. At first, I, I thought it was a little bit hard to wrap my head around. But by the end of the issue, I was on board and I understood what was going on with the main character and her relationship with Mercy. Oh, Mercy. Thalia is the main character. Mercy is yes. the woman that's dying. Yes. And the idea that um, that Talia is Mercy's tether or vice versa to this afterlife world of exploration and understanding. She's uh, kind I, of using her, too. She's sort of, I mean, I don't think she means to, but I think Mercy sees it that way sure. a bit. Like, I loved the art. I, I think it. there's a... Uh, there's a fun little uh, side sequence going on with the uh, supporting characters that are trying to, like, maintain the connection between the two. It, it's weird. It's bizarre. It takes a lot of focus. Yes. And maybe even a repeated reading. But I quite enjoyed it. I think it's a fun concept. Great art. I'm giving it a buy it as well. Yeah, it just reminded me so much of what I loved about, like, some of those really weird 90s Vertigo titles. Grant Morrison's type stuff. And totally agree. Oh, man. I really enjoyed it. Joe yeah. Patrick, what did you review this week? Well, Matt, believe it or not, my review is of Aphrodite 5, number one from Image Comics slash Top this Cow. This is volume 16, I think? Yeah, 16 maybe? or 37. <laughs> I swear, they have been putting these comics out for like 15 years. It's so realize. true. <laughs> uh, this is written by Brian Hill with art by Jeff Spokes. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. In the near future, Los Angeles is a city on the brink of evolution, struggling with a new wave of terror fueled by black market technology. Enter Aphrodite 5, a fugitive from her masters, seeking individuality and purpose. She is the bleeding edge of biomechanics and LA's best hope against a new enemy, one that seeks to become a god among machines. One machine wants to destroy the city, another wants to save it. Only one will survive. 
many years ago, in the pages of an old wizard magazine, there was an ad for something called Sexbot from Top Cow. <laughs> Thankfully, I guess, cooler heads prevailed and Sexbot became Aphrodite 9. Oh, now you're upset about Sexbot. God, it's never going to end with you, <laughs> is it? Jesus. A concept that's been rebooted about as many times as Cyberforce. Originally created by writer David Wall and artist David Finch, Aphrodite 9 was a robot assassin that developed a conscience and rebelled against her masters. If only I could think of something else like that. It just sounds so <laughs> familiar. I don't know. Aphrodite 5 it has a very similar story, but with much less emphasis on the importance of posing with both breasts and both butt cheeks visible at the same time. Oh, now you're upset because she's flexible. Oh, I see what's going on. Come on. Martin Carver is a, quote, gay black billionaire with an IQ of 195. Aren't we all, though? After pitching a life-saving overhaul of the entire Los Angeles police force to a mayor that barely gives him the time of day, Carver and his bodyguard are attacked by a gun-wielding maniac in a makeshift armor suit with mysterious ties to his father. Enter Aphrodite 5, an android on the run who stops just long enough to save Carter's life and potentially change it. I really enjoyed the way Brian Hill portrayed Carver as a good man with a flawed vision. He's got a bit of Tony Stark syndrome. He's so sure that he's right, but he can't see the inherent danger in what he's proposing. Carver's ideas would probably save countless lives, but they're, they basically amount to the privatization of the police force, which is a disaster waiting to happen. And you'd know that if you'd seen RoboCop. Oh, please. Listen to this. All you do is whine. <laughs> <laughs> Aphrodite is quiet, speaking only when spoken to, but not out of submission, but because she's calmly assessing each situation before acting. The action is intense, and there's a fun sense of intrigue with the brainwashed assassins and the connection to Martin's father. I really love the moody art by Jeff Spokes. The book is drenched in shadow and muted color. It reminded me of artists like Ryan Sook. Oh yeah, definitely. Spokes choreographs the action in tight panels that break free of their borders when necessary. The one thing I thought was kind of weird was how most of the characters' faces are a little messed up. Yeah. I don't know if it's supposed to be sweat or blemishes or what, but it kind of stood out. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it was strange, and it, it, it looks like a choice. Yeah, definitely but, a choice. But why do you make that choice? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Look, man. I've never read an Aphrodite comic in my life, so I don't give two shits about this character's backstory or how all the different versions connect together or if they do at all. But I really enjoyed Aphrodite 5 number one. I like the direction Hill is taking the story and I appreciate how the concept has been updated to shed its sexist origins. If you like kick-ass, female-driven action with a near-future cybertech twist, give Aphrodite 5 a, a try. I'm giving it a buy it. I pay so little attention to Aphrodite 9 that I forgot she was number 9, and I thought maybe Brian Hill 
was just writing another one of those and she was number five. <laughs> okay. So that's how little attention I pay to this shit. I didn't have a problem with this. I like Brian Hill and he's really good at writing female characters. We've enjoyed several Brian Hill books starring female characters for a long time. I just feel like I've read this story in particular a thousand times. And, and, and that's not to say it was bad. It just felt very rehashed to me. Hmm. And I'm giving it a strong skim it because this is far and away the best thing that I've ever read from this Aphrodite world, whether it's five or nine. So it's a strong skim it. The art was good. There was some weird face stuff, but I don't feel like there's anything real new here other than Brian Hill injecting a little female energy and kick assitude to the character, I guess. You know what I mean? Kick assitude. It felt a little played out to me. That's all. Fair enough. So that is a buy it and a skim it for Aphrodite V, number one. Aphrodite you- five. Five. <laughs> and a double buy it for Euthanauts, number one. We're going to post our written reviews over at 2 nerdcom You nerds can tell us what you thought of these comics, just how wrong we got them as usual, but please... Share your feelings of these comics with us. Just don't expect to get any money back if you fucking hate it. Oh, yeah. There's no guarantee here. It's not what we're doing here. All right? This week, Matt and I find ourselves battening down the hatches on the good ship THN as floodwaters from the eastern seaboard make their way through the caverns where the ziggurat resides. Matt... It looks like we're not going to have time to save the Moloids again. Let's start sealing doors and ignoring the small pounding fists outside while we review eight more comics during the ludicrous speed round. Thrilling Adventure Hour, number one from Boom! Ben, Zachary, and Black are taking another crack at bringing their podcast slash stage show to comics. Once again, featuring Frank and Sadie Doyle, a pair of hard-drinking, high-society darlings that happen to hunt ghosts. I didn't connect with the Ben's excessive banter as much as I did in their previous volume, and the art by MJ Erickson was just kind of flat and boring. It's not bad, and I really like the idea behind this series, but the execution behind Thrilling Adventure Hour Number 1 just didn't grab me. I'm giving it a skim it. I went back and listened to the last episode where you talked about their image thrilling adventure hour. You said the same exact thing. No, the, the image one was Almost drawn same by thing. Phil Hester and it was amazing. And you said you really liked the Phil Hester art. <laughs> like that was the one thing you took away from her. You loved Hester's art. The life of Captain Marvel. Number one from Marvel. Writer Margaret Stoll gives readers the definitive origin of Carol Danvers with art by veteran Carlos Pacheco, who has yet again revitalized his style and seems to be more talented than ever. Stoll's script is personal, real, and reveals a side of Carol that I really don't ever recall. The Life of Captain Marvel was a near-perfect issue for Marvel's new leading lady. I'm giving this a gigantic buy it. I loved it. The Mall, number one, from Scout Comics. This 1980s coming-of-age crime story takes place in a small Florida town at the height of the popularity of indoor malls. Woo! When the head of the Cardini mob family mysteriously dies, his three illegitimate children each inherit a store in the mall. (laughs) While the stores front as legitimate businesses, the real money is in the illegal business. 
The kids are thrust into a world of crime, all while just trying to survive normal high school life. It's like John Hughes meets The Godfather. Sort of, yeah. I love the concept from writers Don Handfield and James Hake III. The art by Rafael Lurero is fantastic. But, and I know it's a period piece involving a lot of unsavory people, I had a tough time with the racist and homophobic dialogue that came from several characters. Yeah, that's how everything was back in the 80s. Sure, you, I get it. You and fucking... I'm, <laughs> I'm you not, fucking... <laughs> I'm not normally prudish about that sort of thing when it makes sense, but it was just a little much for me. And so, even though I love the idea and the art, I have to give them all number one a skin it. God, you're such a Puritan. Listen to you. Good. Barry, steak fries number one from Keen Spot. I can't believe what I'm about to hear. Barry Steak Fries doesn't like sleeves, and he travels the multiverse with his stolen jetpack, robot dog, and an attitude right out of an Evil Dead script. This was a delightful surprise from Keen Spot, with some genuinely funny scripting and slightly off-putting chibi style that makes everyone look like babies, but the writing goes out of its way to make fun of that, too. I loved Barry Steak Fries, and picture him speaking with a strong Kentucky accent like Timothy Oliphant in Justified. I'm giving this a buy it. You understand that this is a a tie-in to a pay-to-play iPad video game, right? I get it. It was funny, and it was well-written, and the art was pretty good. Hey, look, dude. <laughs> what do you I want love, me to do? I love Jetpack Dry Ride, so whatever. What am I supposed to do? Archie meets Batman, 66, number one, from Archie DC. Jeff Parker, Michael Morisi, Dan Parent, and Jabone bring us yet another Archie pop culture mashup. The writers do a great job invoking the campiness of the Batman TV series with moments like the United Underworld deciding to relocate to Riverdale once <laughs> Gotham becomes too hot and Veronica accidentally hacking her way into the Batcave hotline. Sure. You know, Veronica, <laughs> she's smart. Yeah. <laughs> Parent and Jabone draw the book in classic Archie House style, but they still include little touches like Cesar Romero's mustache under his Joker makeup. Look, I had a ton of fun with Archie meets Batman 66, but I can't imagine that it has broader appeal beyond the nostalgic. I gotta give it a skim it. Injustice versus Masters of the Universe, number one of six from DC. Not even writer Tim Seeley can make me care about the DCU on steroids. That is the Injustice U. Batman uses Swamp Thing and Moss Man to travel through the green to Eternia to kidnap He-Man so he can kill the iron-fisted despot that has be- that Superman has become. Artist Freddie Williams the Two looks like Joe Maduria channeling Frank Frazetta in his in this death metal and monster energy drink-fueled nonsense. I should probably love this, but the Injustice storyline is just too fucking stupid. I can only give this a skim it. It was just dumb. People (laughs) love those Injustice comics. Oh my god. It's so bonkers. It's just ridiculous. Deathbed, number six from Vertigo. You know who loves those comics? People that hate Superman. That's who loves those comics. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Deathbed, number six from Vertigo. Joshua Williamson and Riley Rossmo bring this bizarre series to a close with some thoughtfully poignant lessons 
about the dangers of being obsessed with your own notoriety. That sounds like a bunch of shit to me. Yeah. That isn't to say that there aren't plenty of off-the-wall moments like werewolf mummies on the moon and a thousand-punch deathmatch between two elderly men and a futuristic funeral. Deathbed was a blast to read. It's beautifully drawn by Rosmo with colors by FCO Placentia. Who we still don't know if he's a person or not. Yeah, you know, he's an FCO. This was a great conclusion. It's a huge buy it. If you didn't read Deathbed, it is peak vertigo. Great stuff. Clan Killers, number one from Aftershock. There's comics that are so well written that they can be sort of hard to follow. And then there's others that are just plain old hard to follow. Clan Killers comes off as an overwritten mess that forgets to introduce a story while reveling in some kind of Celtic mythology, I think. I don't know what I read, but I don't need to read any more, so I'm giving this a fucking leave it. <laughs> That's too bad. Antonio Fuso on art. I love that dude. The art was pretty good, but God, there was just no story here. That is your ludicrous speed round, and <laughs> is a sound made when Hobbes pounces on Kelvin as seen in the panels of Calvin and Hobbes. This onomatopoeia of the week was submitted by our old buddy, Micah McGaffin, via our Facebook page, who doesn't understand the rules, so he just picked something cute, and we rolled with it. It's fine. Yeah. If you want to submit an onomatopoeia of the week, you can jump all over it on any of our social media or shoot us an email to twoheadednerd at gmail.com. Now that the ziggurat has been completely submerged, Matt and I are lounging in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where our giant viewing window has now become a very relaxing aquarium. It's really nice. Matt, while we watch the bioluminescent fish dine on drowned moloids, why don't we make our must-read picks for next Wednesday? Sounds good. My pick for next week is Justice League Dark, a title that I cannot stand. But this time, it looks like they're going to do it pretty cool. It's written by James Tinney in The Four, with art by Alvaro Eduardo Martinez Bueno. Whoa. And, yeah. And Raul Fernandez. It's got 32 pages. It costs $3.99. Here is your solicit. From the pages of Justice League. Ain't no justice no more. Earth's magic wants belong to them. Now they want the magic back. But who exactly are they? It's up to the new Justice League Dark to find out and stop this nightmarish new threat at all costs. After the events of No Justice, team leader Wonder Woman guides the misfit magic mix of Zatanna, Swamp Thing, Man Bat, and Detective Chimp, of course, against enemies too fantastic even for the Justice League. Plus, what awful things are coming through the Tree of Wonder! What's the Tree of Wonder? It's from Ain't No Justice No More. Oh, okay. Dark days ahead. I love James Tinney in the four. I love the Swamp Thing, and I love Detective Chimp. And I gotta say, I'm awfully curious what the hell Man Bat's gonna do on this goddamn team, yeah, right? So. <laughs> so the art is by the art is by Alvaro Martinez, comma Raúl Fernandez, comma and Brad Anderson. Oh, it's okay. Three different people. Who's Bueno? I don't know what the Bueno comes from. <laughs> 
That's what it says. I'm not a racist. This is what it says on the diamond retailer. I understand. There is no comma. It says Alvaro Eduardo Martinez Bueno, comma, Raul Fernandez. No, 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 no. (laughs) Joe, what's your pick for next week? Uh, My pick for next week is Action Comics 1001. Obviously, this is from DC Comics, written by B.M. Bendis, with art by Patrick Gleason. It's 32 pages for $3.99. Here's your solicit. Acclaimed writer Brian Michael Bendis' new chapter for The Men of Steel and The World of Tomorrow begins here. The devastating repercussions from The Man of Steel miniseries still reverberate as Metropolis enters a new age. The Daily Planet teeters on the brink of disaster. A new criminal element has made its way onto the streets of Superman's hometown. The longest-running superhero comic of all time explodes off the page. I have been totally in the bag for everything Bendis has done for Superman so far. There's something about the fact that this is Action Comics 1001 that really taps into my deep-seated Superman fandom. Absolutely. And it's like, it's, it, it upsets me. We, we reviewed Amazing Spider-Man number one last week. And it's like, come on, you guys. You were on issue 800. Keep fucking going. Right. Don't do that. You like, know? If you can't market a comic based on the creators, right. if all you've got to go on is the number... You're doing it wrong. You're just fucking doing it wrong. It's that simple. There was no reason that that book needed to relaunch. There was no reason that Doctor Strange needed to relaunch or the Avengers or anything else. But we digress. But we digress. (laughs) Yes. I have loved Bendis up to this point. Um, His run on Action Comics is supposed to be more about like the uh, street level, like the Daily Planet side of things. I'm totally on board with that. Patrick Gleason getting to continue with the character. Nothing but love for that creator. I can't wait. The Teach and Trade of the Week goes to Dork, the hardcover from Dark Horse. It's written and illustrated by Evan Dorkin. It's 272 goddamn pages for $19.99. What a steal. That's ridiculous. Here's your solicit. From the multi-Eisner award-winning creator of Milk and Cheese and Beasts of Burden comes this collection of his cult humor comic anthology comprising years of black humor stories about a living voodoo doll, a serial killer sitcom, truly real live sex, (laughs) a disco skinhead, an urbane devil puppet, classic works of literature acted out by Fisher Price toys, and more absurdity. This is a must-have for Dorkin fans, featuring most of the Dork comic run as well as a 2012 full-color House of Fun special along with rarities, extras, a cover gallery, and a newly drawn introduction. You can't fucking stop me from buying this book. Dude. I love Evan Dorkin. I love Dork. Me too. I own every issue of this. I'm still buying this. That's how good it is. I have all the original Dork trades, and I will definitely get this hardcover. I have uh, three issues of Dork signed by Evan Dorkin. Oh, that's awesome. I love Evan Dorkin. This is perfect, like, short-form comedy bursts. Yes. They're just and, little tiny strips, and they perfectly encapsulate the humor of Evan Dorkin. If you've never read Milk and Cheese... It's very Generation X, 90s, biting, satirical unabashedly weird humor. Oh, you yeah. know, and like in the, in like for fans of kids in the hall, 
for fans of MTV's The State, you know, stuff like that. And that's not to say that it's inaccessible today. It'll still be very funny. But if you're an older an asshole like us, they used to hang out at the comic shop and make fun of each other. You have got to read this. Oh my it's god, so it's so good! It's one so laugh out so loud, good. wonderful stuff. And it's an introduction to one of comics' most underrated creators, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Don't forget, nerds! New comic book day is just one week away, so get these comics added to your pull files right now. It's been more than seven days and you have no goddamn excuse since Ant-Man and the Wasp hit theater. So now it is time for another exciting, spoiler-filled installment of Nerd at the Movies, the Ant-Man and the Wasp edition. As you probably know by now, we like to give everyone a week or so to see the films we discuss and then we go full spoilers. So this here is your spoiler alert. If you don't want Ant-Man and the Wasp Spoilers, take your phone and throw it out of your 10th story window right now. Break your computer too, just to be safe. Break somebody just else's as well. Stomp on it. So they don't fuck it up for you. Joe, after the end of Avengers Infinity War, we were all broken in half when we saw all our favorite yeah. heroes turn into dust and blow away in the uh, Avengers Infinity War spoilers. <laughs> but yes, yes. And a you're smiling right. Thanos sits down, looks at the camera, gives us a thumbs up, and then lifts a butt cheek and farts. The end, right? <laughs> it was dramatic. It was upsetting. It was soul crushing. And I would argue we needed Ant Man and the Wasp after this. But I have to ask you do you think that juxtaposition did a disservice to this film? Oh, heck no. No, no, no. Okay, I don't either, but that is some of the criticism that is out uh, there. Oh, that's nonsense. Like, this I agree. is exactly the same thing that happened at the end of Avengers Age of Ultron. Yes. The first Ant-Man movie came out after Avengers Age of Ultron. It served as a palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. And, like, there, there are no illusions here. We all know what's going to happen. And There's so, no secret that this was going to tie into the end of Infinity War somehow. Now, with that said, it almost, it was a complete afterthought for the film. A complete afterthought. I don't think it was an afterthought. I think it was a forethought. I think that they knew what they were doing. They they had their own standalone story planned. I agree. I just meant they told their entire story, did their job, and then they went, okay, here's your little nugget that ties this into Avengers Infinity War. Which is perfectly fine. Like... The Avengers tie-in is probably the least consequential part of this movie. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I don't have a problem with that. I liked that we got back to the story of an unlikely hero that's caught up in something that he barely understands and is basically being used by the Wasp and her father (laughs) to go and help them find mom, which was really cool. I mean, very cool. Because here... This story is the Wasp's movie. This is the Wasp and Hank Pym's movie. No question. It is Janet and Hank. Sure, sure, sure. So let's separate this from anything that has anything to do with the Infinity War. It's not important. No, it just isn't important. This movie takes place following Captain America Civil War. Yes. Where Scott Lang has defied the Sokovia Accords and followed Captain America into battle. 
And Which, as a result, he's made a deal with the government. He's on house arrest. And he's almost done with his sentence. Almost done. Like within days. When Hank Pym and, and Hope Van Dyne come to him and say, oh, by the way, we need you to break parole and help us rescue our, our mom. Our wife. Our <laughs> wife, our mom, whatever. <laughs> and what yeah. follows is just a series of really strong comedy set pieces uh, that also have like tinges of drama. Yeah, And tense action. And like, there's like really kick-ass chase sequences in this movie. There's like a heist element. Well, in true Marvel form, they set this with the background of a villain that we could relate to in the sense where like, this is ghost is the villain here. And ghost was basically used as a tool of shield. And unlike in the comics, obviously ghost was like an iron man villain and a dude here. Ghost is a woman that, had an experience when she was younger and it destabilized her and they put her in the suit and the way she moves in the film is just incredible. It is, it is like she's standing still, but you can see her arms like ghostly reaching out in front of her. She can phase through walls. Her fight scenes are fucking awesome. And they make her a great foil for Ant-Man and the Wasp because their whole shtick is every time they get in a fight, they shrink, they grow, they shrink, they grow. So when you go to punch, you know, Ant-Man, he gets really little and then he gets big and he punches you, right? Well, they get really little and they get big and they punch and they can't hit her. So it's a really effective foil to them. I will say they did a little bit of reaching in this film where they said Ghost like was falling apart. She was losing control of her powers and she was basically going to completely dissipate, but she needed something from the microverse, like she microverse quantum energy. From energy, the yeah. <laughs> which I guess you just kind of go and you like unscrew your mayonnaise jar and swing it into the air and then screw it back on. And you got some, <laughs> you know, I guess. I don't sure. know. I didn't I have a problem was, with that. I didn't have a problem with that. I thought it was a little wackadoo, but I mean, whatever. It, did, it wasn't like a deal breaker or anything. It just seemed a little tacked on. So the thing that I liked about this movie is the fact that they didn't just duplicate the kind of Iron Man syndrome, right? In mm-hmm. terms of like, oh boy, it's Iron Man 1. It's an armored villain. It's Iron Man 2. It's a dozen armored villains. Right. They're not just raising the stakes. Right. The, the like, stakes are higher here. In Ant-Man, in Ant-Man 1, the villain was another shrinking villain. Okay, right. well, great. That's That was all fine and good. But this villain is so different than the original Ant-Man movie. I thought it was a breath of fresh air. And also and, not the real villain. That's right. the other and fun it part of it. It wasn't really about fighting her. It was about helping her. Right. Well, they were trying to. Yes. They were first. trying to. Yeah. <laughs> and Walton Goggins plays like the true villain here. And he is smarmy weapons dealer guy that sees um, this tech is worth a ton of cash. These guys can shrink a building. You know, and they've been asking me to help them build something and I'm a pretty smart guy and I know what's going on here. So uh, I'm going to steal it from him. You know, like he is truly the bad guy. And even Ghost is involved in trying to stop him. It's it was fun. Like it was like a two sided caper almost the way they filmed it. And this whole time, Ant-Man is a hapless basic 
moron. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Yeah, like well, the ghost, the wasp really does all the heavy lifting and she's fantastic here. Oh man. M- my favorite thing. So the very first, it was probably the very first Ant-Man and the Wasp trailer. Every single action piece in that original trailer revolved around the wasp, yes. not Scott. Well, she's just way better than he is. Period. Yeah. She's and a better fighter. She, was she has amazing. wings. Yeah, she can shoot lasers. She can do everything he can't. Right. <laughs> and and they lay it out like Hank Pym tells it. Like he turns and he's like, she can shoot lasers, she can fly. And he's like, yeah, I didn't think you were ready for that. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just great. Evangeline <laughs> Lilly as the Wasp is fantastic. I really love the idea that uh, Scott is kind of bumbling and he's doing his best and he's learning as he goes and he's getting better, but uh, Hope Van Dyne has been training for this her entire life. Right. And it shows, it shows in the film how much more prepared Hope is than Scott to face anything that they're dealing with. But at the same time, Scott's like main power is he's a genuinely good guy. He's a genuinely sweet guy. He has friends around him that would do just about anything for him, even though they're, you know, Michael Pena and the gang, they're idiots, but they yeah. love him and he's taking care of them and he swears by them and they are there to help him. You right. Know? And he's taking care of his daughter. There's right. A, there's a he's really also cool taking way. care of his daughter. I, I think uh, Mark Wade has done a really nice job of this in this latest Ant-Man and Wasp miniseries that they're doing with Hope and uh, Scott in oh, showing well, that Nadia like, yes. in the comics, but yeah, uh, pardon me, Nadia. In the comics, which why not just make her hope? Who cares? Are we going to be confused with with Cable's daughter? Really? Come on. I think Nadia may have predated Hope, but regardless, yeah, make her go away. Nobody cares. <laughs> she changed her name. Whatever. <laughs> but the point being, it's he's an unlikely hero, but he is a hero. And the way they leave him in the end of this film, where we're going full spoiler, so he is trapped in the quantum world. He goes in. He's helping get the energy yes. to help Ghost out. So and this as is he's the there, this is the post credits sequence. Right. Thanos snaps his fingers, and Janet Van Dyne, who they have rescued, Hope and Hank, Hank. all just just disappear. They Boom, they're gone. Yeah, leaving Ant Man in the microverse, which I refuse to call the quantum realm. But I, I agree. <laughs> that's what it is. It's it is great, the microverse. It's a great cliffhanger. It's a great cliffhanger, and now Ant, it leaves Ant-Man in a position where he has to become the hero that he has sort of been dodging the whole time. Like, yeah, he has fantastic powers. He ends up doing the right thing sort of in spite of his own stupidity sometimes, but now he's going to have to become the hero, and I hope that's where they're going to go with this character next. And this was a nice step in building that, in showing, like, there's a larger world, you just happen to be a part of it, now that you're in, you can't get out. Yeah. And now you have to become the hero that you think that you are, that your little girl thinks that you are. I love You know that. what I mean? So and like, my, a, my favorite. It's a great setup for whatever they do next with the character. My, it's a fucking fantastic setup. My favorite part of these, uh, these two anime movies is the fact that Scott Lang is a single dad mm-hmm. sharing joint custody with his wife. And they actually have a good, healthy, strong relationship. Yeah. 
his wife's his his ex wife's husband loves him. Yeah, <laughs> like right. hugs him. All I the love time. it. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that they get along. It's not dysfunctional. And it's Bobby Carnavale who I love. Bobby Carnavale, yeah, amazing, fantastic actor. And it's something that I don't think we see in a lot of media. Whenever we see divorced. Mothers or fathers, there's always yeah. some sort of conflict. And that like, is uh, not... My bitch ex-wife's been giving me hell. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not present here. They love each other. No. They support each other. They care about each other. I love it. Yeah, they just realized it just doesn't work. It, we just didn't work, you know? Yeah. And more importantly is taking care of our daughter. And I, the little girl, I, I forgive me for not knowing her name, was wonderful in this. Cassie is the do- is the character's name. I meant the actress's name. She, she's really, really good in this. Yeah. And uh, it just does a fantastic job in being that thing that Scott wants to be a hero for. Everybody else in the Marvel movies, like Spider-Man is being a hero because he thinks it's what he has to do, and he looks up to his other heroes. Captain America's a hero because he can't fucking help it. He's Cap. Iron Man is a hero because it serves his needs, and he's a futurist and whatnot. Scott is a hero because he has a daughter and he thinks she looks up to him and he just wants to be that guy. And it's so sweet. This movie at the end of the day was hilarious. It was really well acted. Michael Pena has some wonderful scenes again in this one that are absolutely hilarious. And there's some callbacks to some stuff he did in the first movie that worked really well. But at the end of the day, it's just a guy trying as hard as he can to be a good guy. And we can really relate to Scott because he's just like you and me. He doesn't yeah. know karate. He's not a billionaire. He doesn't have any superpowers. He just has a suit and he can shrink. This was wonderful. And I had a ton of fun with it. I'm excited to see it again very soon. And like we said, it's a really nice palate cleanser because whatever is coming next, even the guardians of the galaxies movies have gotten super heavy, you know, there is not going to be anything light until we in the end of Avengers 4. And even then, who fucking knows where we're going to be? <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> so in the parlance of our rating system, I'm giving this an absolute watch it. Yeah, I, absolutely. Go see this in the theaters. Watch it. I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed the first thing. I think it's better than the first thing. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I think they're just getting better at these. Get loose now. We want to know what you guys thought of Ant-Man and the Wasp, so let us know on the THN forums or on the Facebook page or, you know, wherever. The tweeters or the tumblers. The tweeters or the tutors. Stay tuned for more Nerd at the Movies when the next film comes out, I think. What the is next our next one Nerd the Movies? is Captain Marvel. No way. There's got to be something before that. No, I don't think so. You got to be kidding me. We're missing Cap- something. Captain Marvel in February, then Infinity uh, Avengers 4 in May. Yeah. There's nah, not I'm going to make you there's not I'm making you do something Star else before Wars that. Movie. I am making you do something else before that. Don't worry, folks. There we'll isn't anything else. Oh, there will be. Excelsior. Oh. That is it for THN 494. But before we get the hell out of here, that was like four fours in a row. Joe, please ask these nerds a new question of the week. The new question of the week comes from Cross via the THN forums. Here's this quote. So I have been reading the My Hero Academia side story, Vigilantes. In it, the main character's power is basically a speed power, but with a twist. He doesn't just run fast like the Flash, he requires three 
points of contact to the surface, and he glides around, kind of like a bug at high speeds. So like two legs, two feet, and a penis. Yeah, usually on his here? on his hands and feet. <laughs> he puts his puts his his fists on his, his hips, and he leans over with his toes and his wiener and flies yeah, around. Dick, yeah, right. <laughs> He's called the crawler. So my question would be, which is your favorite representation of a superpower? For example, do you like the Human Torch being covered in flames? Or do you like Sunfire who just shoots them? Do you like Jean Grey's form of telekinesis or do you like Psylocke's psychic sword? Do you like Superman's style of flying or do you prefer Cannonball exploding all over the place, etc., etc.? Not a firepower, by the way. Just exploding. Well, I mean, you know, we've had that debate in the past. We're not, we're not, not getting back into that. It. THN is a listener-supported podcast. We want to thank everyone that shows out their hard-earned cash cash that they could be spending and probably should be spending at their local comic shop every week by supporting this show on PayPal and Patreon. Without you nerds, we cannot afford our weekend tickets to O Comic Con, which we had so much fun at this weekend, and it was good to see everybody that was there. Super rad. Thanks, dudes. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to JD Catch and the Black Squirrel, the bar, not the tattoo shop. Technically, the BLK Squirrel. BLK Squirrel. Yes. For hosting this past weekend's THN Meetup. <laughs> Word to everyone that came out, Darren Neely, Aura McWilliams, Chase Magnet, and his wife. We had a great time. Hopefully, we'll have a chance to do it again next year or sooner and get more of you listeners to attend. Until next time, True Believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just come over and shave all the black squirrels in your lawn. This is the Two-Headed Nerd. Signing off!